0: If you're a regular listener to the Van City Podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church slash give. This is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part eight in the series James, Forgetting Your Own Face. What makes us fight? How is such a thing resolved? James has a dim view of human character as tarnished by selfish ambition and desire and sees only one way up out of the mire of pride. In a world of sorry, not sorry, and I'm sorry you feel that way, we are never far from half apologies. In fact, this week, for fun, I googled pop culture apologies and it was ridiculous, (laughs) hilarious, and haunting. But one story in particular caught my attention that I had never heard of. In World War II, Nazi Germany killed around 5 million prisoners of war, and on top of that, an estimated six million Jewish men, women, and children, many of which occurring in the country of Poland. 25 years after the war, in December of 1970, a man named Willy Brandt, who was the German chancellor at the time, visited Warsaw, the capital of Poland. He was there to sign a treaty to officially recognize the border between East Germany and Poland. I read this from the article. As a staunch opponent of the Nazis, the gravity of the post-war situation probably didn't escape Brandt. Walking up to the monument to the ghetto heroes in Warsaw, a funeral wreath adorned with white carnations and a ribbon in colors of the German flag was placed there. Brandt, in his formal attire, but an expression that seemed to give away more than just diplomatic resolve, adjusted the ribbon on the wreath, took a moment to himself, and promptly got on both of his knees. The space around him was filled with exciting shudders, silent gasps, and stunned onlookers. The kneeling of Warsaw proved significant beyond Warsaw and beyond interstate diplomacy. This gesture probably helped his achievements as West Germany's chancellor, which then led him to the Nobel Peace Prize one year later. While at the time, positive reactions may have been limited, his show of humility was a small but vital step in bridging the gaps that World War II had left between Germany and Eastern Europe. This seemingly spontaneous moment of humility and apology for crimes he didn't commit and was actually against, seemed to propel the restoration process of intercountry healing 25 years after the war. Without words, his actions spoke for him and deeply impacted history. Over the last few weeks, we've been in the book of James. We've been learning a lot about our words and our actions, and tonight is no different. Please open your Bibles with me to James chapter four. We are in a summer long series that is going through the book of James line by line. The teaching team is breaking down the letter from Jesus's brother to the early church. Also something new I learned in this series is that the author's name is actually Jacob, which is wild. If you don't know why, please feel free to catch up on the podcast. It was the first one, and we mention it in every other one. (laughs) I don't have time to get into all those details tonight, but I really recommend, in general, catching up because this has been a really convicting and a beautiful series. Anyways, if you guys could please stand with me in a gesture of reverence as we read God's word together. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. But when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. This is some heavy language, like most of this book, to be honest. And if you've been at City for a while, you know that there are certain teachings of Jesus and scripture that can feel like a sting to our self-centered spirits. The book of James is very cleverly written with constant reflection of the themes from Sermon on the Mount, which is one of Jesus' most famous and intense teachings on what it looks like to belong to the way of Jesus, that it's a lifestyle and not just a prayer you've said one time. By the way, I was that kid in youth group every time the pastor said at the end of the evening, if that's you, raise your hand, no one's looking. Raise your hand if you want to be best friends with Jesus. And I would raise my hand every single week. (laughs) Clearly, I was a little confused. What was missing in those early years of my discipleship was what it looked like to live like Jesus, not just love him. The two are actually one in the same because of our love for him and because of his love for us. We learn to be friends with Jesus and we start to do the things that he does. So James, or Jacob's book, is a helpful redirect for disciples of Jesus. New converts, Messianic Jews who had the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament completely memorized. They have taken the poor and the rich, the well-connected and the widows and orphans to learn how to live together like Jesus. So as we dig through together, the meaning and weight behind Jacob's words, keep in mind, When this letter was written, it didn't have chapter marks. So we're coming into verse one, right out of last week's teaching on selfish ambition and earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom from the end of chapter three. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. In the first few words right away, we read fighting and quarreling. Now, I wanna clarify that this does not mean arguments or working through difficult conversations. Scripture gives us clear and helpful instruction for godly conflict resolution. The book of James emphasizes what Jesus says, he does not contradict it. In this context, the author Jacob is referring to serious and literal fighting, violent and harsh, verbal and physical. The word fighting can also be translated as warring and swording, like actual murder. And I don't know about you, I've never personally wielded a sword and I don't plan on going to war, Even so, I am not exempt from this correction. The part that sticks us all in the gut is next when it says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And to be honest, when I first read this, I was kind of confused. The psalm, God will give us the desires of our hearts came to mind, and I thought, well, desire isn't always bad, this feels extreme. But as they dove deeper into the text, it turns out this desire in Greek is hedone, or the root of where we get our English word, hedonism. This selfish desire is causing believers to murder each other, to jealously long after something that a brother or sister has. We don't know exactly what the topic that is causing the fighting, but we do know that Jacob cares that his audience is using violence to get their way. Theologian Scott McKnight had this to say, physical or not, even to this day, the words of James should embarrass those who are committed to a Lord who taught the way of love, the way of peace, and whose cross brought into graphic reality a new cross or way of life. As I mentioned earlier, we're coming right out of the end of chapter three. Last week, Josh touched on what it means to live a pure and peaceful life, what it's like to lay down our selfish ambitions, the new way of life. With that same thread in our minds here in the beginning of chapter four, we are seeing the fruit of what happens when our selfish ambitions are held onto. What happens when we decide to leave our inward-focused desires unchecked? It gets violent. And get this one. God cannot be on the side of selfish ambition. Moving on to verse four, and it gets really intense for a good reason. Pulling from the language of the Old Testament, Jacob calls them adulterers, meaning their lives and hearts aren't solely living for God's kingdom anymore. Friendship with the world, as Jacob puts it. In this context, the world means anything that is in direct opposition to God and his ways. And as most relationships go, it usually starts slow and time goes on and you get more and more comfortable. And sometimes we don't realize how close you've become with someone. It just sort of happens, or does it? Maybe it's just one more episode or scrolling social media with the intention to see what our favorite influences are into right now, or just one more hit of the snooze button instead of getting up for quiet time or my personal struggle one more chapter of my book before going to sleep, but one chapter turns into three chapters and then I'm really grumpy and for sure searching for my non-existent snooze button because my alarm clock is in fact my children. (laughs) Sleep, reading, and social media aren't inherently bad, but it's often when we use these things to numb ourselves to the Holy Spirit's prompting in our lives that we miss out on what he could be doing. In fact, according to Jacob, if we start to intentionally ignore the Spirit's movement in our life or his presence, we are slowly becoming enemies of God, and we cannot take that lightly. In middle school, my youth pastor used to say all the time, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And it's true, like with most things there are the exceptions, but the point is we are being shaped over time by the relationships that we prioritize in the same way we are being formed by our habits. When we become cozy and comfortable in this world, sacrificing our lives for more stuff, our curated social feed, our our selfish desires, then we are carving time away from our relationship and friendship with our creator God quietly bending our spirits to be content with the things of this world. Friendship with the world and enmity with God is serious. It is a wedge that is vast and it cannot be sutured up with the magic prayer you said one time 10 years ago, or 30 times if you're me. (laughs) We are firm believers that life with God means it's an ongoing relationship back And forth, time and effort spent in getting to know who God is and letting him bring out his image in us. Like any relationship that is of deep value, there's an investment and time commitment necessary in order for that friendship to thrive. Are you guys still with me? Good. So according to the scholars that I read this week, we are hitting the pinnacle of chapters three and four with this next section. Jacob has essentially ripped into this community in a very serious manner, calling out all sorts of sin and failings and not lightly. He then goes on to say in verse five, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The spirit Jacob is talking about here is the God-given breath of life we all have. And within our spirit is a tied to this world sort of struggle. The part of us that knows what we should be doing versus the action. And this whole book is about what we actually do with our lives. It's that push and pull we see all throughout scriptures, the forever internal struggle of humanity. As Paul says in Romans 7:19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. This tension to do the things that Jesus did, but not wanting to be with him or really learn from him or vice versa, wanting to be with him, but then we don't actually end up being like him. Again, Scott McKnight says this, they did not go to God for wisdom because they wanted what they wanted and not what God wanted. They had no capacity even to pause to consider what might be the good and honorable path. And there's one thing that is in all of us that will forever stand on the side of that selfish ambition, our pride. We are bombarded, probably daily, with the Western culture of success. Not only is You Do You a tattoo people pride themselves in owning, but progress is metered by how fast you move up your company or how many houses you own or the number in your bank account. We nurture pride by giving it permission, by calling it confidence and achievement. And on the flip side, false humility is rampant and tricky to spot. False humility, as a friend of mine defines, is when you want to be perceived as humble but unwilling to pay the cost of being truly humble. It's about covering our controlling nature, our our second guessing of others, and our belief that we know better with a thin veil. At its root, false humility is about placing value on how we are perceived over what is right, which is just another version of pride. So what does true humility look like? I believe it's revealed those whose lives are ordered around the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of this world. Whose approval are we seeking? What are the motivations for our actions? Do our actions, words, and heart posture reflect the kingdom of God? So for those of us who defer to our own strength more often than not, myself very much included, Let's look here, verse 5, he says, he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. The jealousy that God has is for his power and presence to be alive and active in his children, that through his grace, our bodies and souls will become the resting place for the Holy Spirit that they were designed to be, reflecting his image in all of us. Not only does God want to dwell in us, but he offers the grace to make that possible. Jacob wants his readers to repent, to be held accountable, and to work through their failures before God. And remember, this isn't for salvation, this is for those who are already in relationship with Jesus. That's why this reminder of God's grace is so vital. It doesn't only cover us in the beginning, his grace covers us for eternity. Remember, we are saved by grace. And we will be accountable for everything we do and say, every careless word, every misaligned allegiance, and every flirtatious encounter we have with the world. This dichotomy is wild. The weight of our sin and pride versus the unending and gracious love of God. The solution to being an enemy to God, walking out life with pride and selfish ambition, is submission to God, knowing how to bow before the reverent mighty king and not just casually surf through life on the get out of hell free prayer or a just do the right thing kind of attitude. So how do we reconcile all of this? It starts with a simple command of submission to God, which then reminds us, First Peter 5, especially verse six, when he says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand. This isn't aimless submission or humbling. It is a purposeful one under God's mighty hand, a choice to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. The word humble means to make low or bring down. Submission and humility is a way that we create space for God to move and work in our lives. And to be totally frank, submission is not really in my nature and I feel really confident in saying I'm probably not alone in that feeling. But I'm slowly learning that submission is often saying I'm sorry to God, and listening long enough to follow what comes next, to lay down my pride or my desires, my selfish ambition, my disordered lifestyle, and replace it with humility and purity and peacemaking. The next few verses continue on with an example of repentance. So it starts with submission, then resisting Satan and the evil that follows him, and then a calling back to closeness and intimacy with God. When Dave and I were in premarital counseling, one of the pieces of advice given to us was to always compete and to be the first person to sincerely apologize, to draw near to the other, take responsibility for your side of the argument. And the thing is, without fail, whoever it is, when we physically move towards the other person in tenderness and humility and repentance, everything shifts. The body language is open, the tone is more tender, and reconciliation is imminent. I have tried to stay mad in conflict. Sometimes it feels really good to hold on to that anger. But when the person I love genuinely says, I'm sorry, disappointment melts away. And I find humility breeds peace. Which brings us to the next point. Jacob's call to repentance is not singular, nor is it entirely internal. By using language like wash your hands and purify your hearts, he's meaning to encompass a whole mind, body, and spirit involvement. Yes, absolutely, go before the Lord with awareness of our failures, ask for forgiveness, apologize. And then what? Do you need to apologize to a brother or a sister, a parent or a friend or a spouse? Apologizing, for me anyways, is painful. Like, it is very difficult for me and something I am actively working on and through with help. But while prepping for this teaching, I was reminded of Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is the true picture of humility. However, being raised in the Spice Girls era, I grew up to be really There's a few of us out here. I grew up to be really confident in how God made me. Girl power forever, baby. (laughs) And now I'm seeing that kind of led me on a path to seeing myself above other people. This idea that I can do whatever I want and what I feel is the most important thing in the world is all that matters. And I am all for women empowerment. Do not get me wrong, but it should never be at the expense of another child of God. Oof. So reading texts like this one in James and Philippians, I am reminded that as someone committed to the way of Jesus, it is not a suggestion, but a command that I value others over myself, that I work and walk towards humility, which also conveniently takes us through the last few verses of this text. Verse 11, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another, Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? By sitting in judgment on the law, Jacob is insinuating that we believe we are above the law, and the law here being is what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses 37, 38, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Which means Jacob was hitting on this idea that we only ask others to live by the standard, to care for you more than they care for themselves. we are exempt from that lifestyle. So we get to sit above the law and in doing so, we are justifying our sin. And Jacob alludes to the listener that he is then elevating himself to the position of God by being the judge. In our world where we don't even know the name of our neighbor, let alone how to truly love them, it can be really easy to reserve yourself for your exclusive friend group and be available to them only but in the backwards kingdom of God where the first will be last and the last will be first. It is through humility and a deep love and interest for God and others that will make our spirits come alive. The spirit that God jealously longs for and protects with his grace. The breath of life that was originally given to us in order to tend and cultivate and care deeply for all of creation a dream the other week. I was running around, which is weird because I don't run, but I was running around pulling two by fours out of people's eyes and their vision cleared and they were always so grateful. And I felt so warm and fuzzy that I got to help them. But the perspective in my dream shifted and I could see the side of my face and I had an actual tree log sticking out of my face, which is an obvious subconscious picture of Jesus's words in Matthew 7. What good is it to point out or judge the failures of others without acknowledging and working through my own? For I am just as broken as the people who inspired this letter. And sometimes, being a part of the church for as long as I have, I forget that, that I too am still broken, continually needing the grace of God. And we all have choices every day. We are all given the same 24 hours. And after working through this text, I was really convicted of two things in my life. One, my pride, a forever work in progress, yes. And if we lay down our selfish desires, but then justify them with the next breath, you might struggle with pride like I do. And second, my need to repent. Again and again and again, and not just when I said the magic prayer that 30 times, but because the one thing that is sure to always take out pride is repentance. Although our pride will manifest differently from person to person, repentance looks the same. Jacob thankfully spells this one out for us, but let's not miss the order in which Jacob presents everything, calling out the sin reminding us of God's jealous love for our spirits, his grace, pointing out the need for humility, and then submission to God. He understands the human condition. He pointedly reminds us that we have to have a base level of humility in order for us to grasp our deep need for repentance. With Jesus and also the people in our lives, it starts with the realization that we are all in need of forgiveness continually. So, what does repentance look like? As we submit to God, Jacob says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Holding on to our pride and sin is corrupting. If we have treated people poorly with our words, actions, or in this specific case, swords, and we're not repenting, that is how the devil takes hold, how we befriend this world. But dismantling pride, refusing to slander or participate in gossip makes us like God and therefore near to God, which then forces the devil to flee, which is why Jacob says next, come near to God and he will come near to you. One last time from McKnight, he says, drawing near to God is a dimension of humility, submission, and resisting the devil. Physical and verbal proximity is no substitute for inner vulnerability to God. We love that word, vulnerability. But it's true that with vulnerability, we can work together as a community to steward peace. By being a group of people slow to accuse, quick to apologize and faster to offer real forgiveness, the more we can foster peace as brothers and sisters. I have this friend, I've known her for a really long time. She's part of my inner circle, a true dear friend. She has been a really beautiful example of what repentance and forgiveness looks like tangibly. And not only does she work hard at leading with vulnerability, she also has the bravery to call us out on our shortcomings, but in a really loving way. There was one time a few months ago in preparation for a retreat that a bunch of us were putting on together. There's a few of us that had a conversation about a registration thing. It was small, but a legal thing. And the retreat was only a few weeks away. So a few of the girls and I were trying to sort it out. You know, figuring out what would be the best way to communicate to everyone and get signatures from all the people who have already signed up and registered. And since we live in three different states, I was trying my best and failing to describe how we could do it electronically. And this was all happening via text messages, which is not always the best avenue of communication in the first place, in case you were unsure about that one. Little life lesson for you. Anyways, I was short and pushy, I was busy in my day trying to get through it, and I miscommunicated and unknowingly and unintentionally caused hurt to a friend. And this friend called me out on it. Rereading what I wrote, I immediately knew I needed to say sorry. She noted my desire for things to be efficient and easy, but brought light to my carelessness and impatience and how I phrased my words. I remember feeling embarrassed, and then remorseful. I never meant to cause hurt, and I was actually really thankful she brought it up to me so that I could clear the air. And the thing is, she's been like this for eight years. She tenderly, gently calls me out, giving me the opportunity over and over again to repent and restore our relationship. We've been doing retreats for over six years. There's eight of us girls on the team. We've had our fair share of hurt feelings, Growth opportunities, like we like to call it. But I can honestly say we are great friends who live in peace with each other and we all serve along each other, aside each other, in a connected and vulnerable way. Because our friend leads by example. She creates practice opportunities for us to be honest, vulnerable, and to seek repentance. This example was from a few months ago and it didn't sting like the first one. It hurts to be called out. But I have found with practice, we get used to the sting. Or even better, the sting turns into a poke in the right direction towards apologies, towards taking responsibility, and towards restoring relationships. So as we work towards living a life reflective of Jesus, we can actively move towards a life surrendered committed to restoring burned relationships and a renewed humility to actively pursue Jesus and follow his example. Repentance looks like peace with each other. It allows you to see God's image in one another, celebrate and honor each other. So as we wrap up, I wanted to point out one last thing. I think this is one of the most beautiful things from this text And it's the line, but he gives us more grace. These things we are trudging through in the book of James are are tough, which is maybe why it's dropped in here like that, to remind us of God's grace. But we can also see in the exact same verse to walk towards humility. It's this age-old tension of, I am an image bearer of the creator God whose grace is sufficient. And also, I'm an utterly broken person. My hope is that I start remembering daily that while I am broken, his grace is enough. And based on that knowledge, I hope to reflect his love for me through my words, actions, and repentance to him and to those around me. That sweet spot in the middle, not solely relying on his grace forever and not sitting in my brokenness, So while we dedicate ourselves to doing the things that Jesus does, we need to, in tandem, be with him and allow him to renew our souls, to walk in humility, to see others over ourselves, to bow low as a life posture, to do the work it takes to work through repentance and restoration. A promise that Jacob makes is come near to God and he will come near to you. So let's pray, spend the rest of our gathering with Him, drawing near to Him, and be intentional with working through all we just heard. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Van City financially at vancitychurch/give.